The rest of us, if we have our Bible, we turn with us to turn with me to Hebrews chapter six. Frankly, I am glad to see that you all came back after that warning that we saw in Hebrews six last week. So before we uh, begin uh, the end of this chapter, Hebrews chapter six, uh, let's take a second just to recap where we are in Hebrews. So in chapter five, verse eleven. All the way to 620s, what we're going to get through today, that has been really a digression, a break. Uh, it's been a break in the teaching of Hebrews. So from the beginning of the book of Hebrews, when we started, the writer has shown us the glories of Jesus, that Jesus is better. We've seen it over and over and over again. Jesus is better than the high priests and better than the temple and better than the sacrifices and the angels and Moses. And he is telling, remember, the Hebrew Christians that are being tempted to go back to Judaism to save themselves from persecution. And he's been saying from the beginning of this book that Jesus is superior, better than all things. And beginning in chapter 5... He started showing us how Jesus perfectly fulfills the priesthood. He's telling them, don't go back to the Old Testament priests. He's telling these Hebrew Christians, Jesus fulfilled the priesthood. He's representing us perfectly before God. And he said in that passage that Jesus is a priest in the order of Melchizedek. And we talked a little bit about who Melchizedek was and what that means. But that's a subject that he's going to pick back up in chapter 7 as soon as right after this passage. We'll get to Melchizedek next week. I'm sure you can't wait. <clears throat> but from 5.11, he stopped his presentation of Jesus is better and he is a, the pre, high priest for us, representing us. He stopped mid-teaching to warn the readers and exhort us to go on to maturity. He said in that first section that we must no longer be dull of hearing but hold fast to our hope in Christ. Um, and then he warned us, he warned us that many who've received the benefits of gospel preaching, the fellowship with the church, and have seen the Spirit moving, have fallen away. And he warned the readers about falling away. And last week we looked at that text and we examined that passage and, and demonstrated from the text that those whom he is referring to uh, were those who had never been born again. But they looked like Christians, they acted like Christians, probably even believed that they were. And then in verses 9 through 12 of chapter 6 that we looked at last week, he gave, after that warning, this, this encouragement, this wonderful encouragement saying, we're sure of better things about you, the things that belong to salvation. And he gave the reason why this hard, hard warning, this terrifying warning is here in Hebrews 6 in the first place. It was to spur us to have assurance and hold on to Christ. In verses 11 and 12 of chapter 6, which was the end of the passage we read last week, it says, we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have full assurance of hope to the end. That was his desire. Why he gave this strong warning. So that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. So the author of Hebrews and the spirit who inspired the author of Hebrews, he wants us striving in earnestness, holding to our hope in Christ so that we will have full assurance of hope to the end. God wants you to have full assurance of hope. Not a weak hope or a frail hope, not a doubting everything all the time, being fearful and walking on eggshells, but being cautious 
knowing the danger, but holding fast to Christ, who is the anchor of our soul. Now, the warning that we saw last week was to show us the danger of becoming dull of hearing, becoming sluggish, so that we would hold fast to our anchor and not drift. And after saying this, these things in verses 11 and 12, we must imitate those who inherit the promise by faith and patience. He gives this passage, this next passage, and this encouragement. He says, For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes, an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise, the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Let's pray. Father, we do love you and we thank you for your word. God, we pray that you'd be with us as we walk through this text and that you'd show us what you would have us to know. God, that we would see your truth, your word, your promise for what it is and see you for who you are. We thank you, God, for directing us. We thank you for guiding us. And we pray your spirit would come and change us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, we've talked a lot in Hebrews about holding fast, holding on to Christ, not going back to the old religion, the old ways. That's the point of the book of Hebrews. Jesus is better. But in this life, we have many reasons that come at us, many reasons to doubt. You know, we get tired Get tired of trusting Christ for things that I don't see right now. Tired of trusting for a promise that I don't see happening and I don't see how it can happen in the midst of suffering and trials and following Christ when we don't understand how it can work out. Obeying God's will when it doesn't look like the right thing to do at all. We get weary of looking in hope to the future when trial and hurt and suffering and all of the things are pummeling me right now. The Hebrew Christians this was written to was go, were going through persecution and they were being overwhelmed. So to explain how we can have full assurance of hope to the end and imitate those who by faith and patience inherit the promise, as he said in verse 12, he begins by giving us an illustration and turns to Abraham. He says, For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus, in this way, Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. Now, when God said this to Abraham, this quote in verse 14, when he said it to Abraham is very important. The quote in verse 14 comes from Genesis 22. And what was happening was God said this right after Abraham almost sacrificed Isaac. Know the story, right? To understand 
kind of the author's point of what he's talking about using Abraham as an example like this, you really, I really need to give you a, a little refresher on Abraham. So God gave Abraham a, a promise in Genesis 12. He called him out from his land. He promised to make him a great nation. And he said this. He said, through your offspring, through your seed, through you, the families of the earth will be blessed. All the families of the earth will be blessed. And that promise is a foreshadowing of the gospel. It was foretelling the coming of Christ. Paul the apostle tells us that. That this promise made to Abraham, in you all of the families of the earth will be blessed, is a reference to the gospel. In Galatians 3, he said, Jesus is the offspring promised to Abraham, through whom all of the families of the earth will be blessed. We're told in the New Testament, this promise points to the gospel. So the promise to Abraham was made in Genesis 12, when Abraham was 75 years old. But years later, after waiting and waiting and waiting, this man who received the promise of God, of his offspring, uh, blessing the world, still didn't have a single son to have any heirs that would bless anybody. Abraham began to lose hope. And he questioned God because God had not given him a son. In Genesis 15, God came to him again and he said, this is, reaffirmed the promise. And Abraham said, you, you, you haven't even get, given me a son. This servant of mine is going to be my heir. And God made him the promise again saying, no, this servant is not going to be your heir, but one from your own body and from Sarah's body is going to be your heir. And so... When he questioned him in Genesis 15, God reaffirmed that promise and told him Isaac would be born. Later he said, you will name him Isaac and it would be through Isaac that the promise would come. But it wasn't until 25 years after the promise was given that Abraham actually had Isaac. But hey, you know, once Isaac's born, things are looking up. I mean, at least now you can see some movement. You can see, okay, now I see how your promise is going to be fulfilled. Now I can see that, yes, I will be the father of many nations. Now at least we've got some movement toward this promise that God is, God is bringing it to pass. We can see it. But incredibly, God then tells Abraham to take this son, the one he said would be the heir through whom all the nations of the earth will be blessed, and sacrifice him. The very son God said was the promised heir. God didn't just say at, at once Isaac was born, uh, well, you're going to have a son and a son will be the promise. No, he said through Isaac it will be named. And then he told Abraham, I want you to take Isaac up to the mountain and I want you to sacrifice him. God is asking Abraham to destroy the promise that God made him. After Abraham waited and waited and waited and waited. Miraculously, I think, Abraham obeyed. I mean, he gets ready to sacrifice Isaac. And you know the story. I don't have to go through the whole thing. God stops him and halts him. And in Genesis 22, after Abraham was tested and after, Abraham, after God stopped Abraham from sacrificing his son, God added an oath to his promise. He swore, it says in Genesis 22, And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you've done this and not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you. Here's the quote from verse 14 in Hebrews 6. 
I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply you. Your offspring as the stars of heaven, and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gates of its enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. God swore an oath by his own nature, by himself, that the promise would come to pass. Now, swearing by himself, that's what the writer of Hebrews is referencing, swearing by himself means that he's binding himself to his word. And to fail to bring that word to pass would mean he's not God. Now, we'll talk about why God swore that oath in a moment. But notice the point of this example. The point the writer's making in bringing up Abraham and talking about all this promise and oath and all these things. Having patiently waited, he obtained the promise. Having endured in faith, Abraham obtained the promise. Abraham is an example of what verse 12 said. We are to imitate those who, by faith and patience, inherit the promise. And example, exhibit A, Abraham. In faith, he endured, despite the trials, despite the hardships, despite the long time that it took for the promise to be fulfilled. Abraham waited years for the promise of God. Even when it looked like the promise, there was no way it could be fulfilled. The suffering Hebrew Christians were enduring hardship, persecution. They couldn't see, after years of being persecuted for their profession in Jesus, they couldn't see how holding fast to Christ, obeying Christ's word, obeying Christ's will could possibly work out well for them. They were drowning in their trials. They were losing hope in God's promise. So, so telling them to hold fast and imitate, imitate Abraham, who by faith and patience inherited the promise, he, he's saying, this is what God's people have done. And, but that's easy, isn't it? I mean, it's easy to say, come on now, I know you're suffering, I know you're hurting, I know it doesn't look like the promise can be fulfilled, I know it doesn't look like following Christ is for your benefit or it's going to be good to you. It, in fact, it looks just the opposite. It looks like if you walk up that mountain to sacrifice your son, everything goes down the drain. So how can I obey God and obey God's word when it looks like doing so is going to mess up everything? That's easy to say, oh, just do it, just be faithful. But I want to know how. How was Abraham strong enough to wait all that time? To wait long in faith? And then how was he strong enough to sacrifice or, or attempt to sacrifice the very promise that he had hoped in for all this time? You see what he was doing? God said, I'm going to give you a son and he waited and waited and waited and waited and waited and waited. And then when he finally saw the beginning of the fulfillment and got the son, God said, I'm taking him away from you again. How could Abraham say, okay? Because he believed the word of the Lord. In Hebrews 11, it says, by faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who received the promises, Abraham, who received the promises, was in the act of offering up his son, the son, Isaac, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. You see what he's saying there? He's saying, God told him to sacrifice his son and God said it would be through his son Isaac that the promise was God was taking back or it seemed his promise 
But Abraham believed the promise and said, I have no idea how this is going to work. I have no idea how it's going to happen. God must just going to be... I mean, that's not good English, but God must... God will... God will have to raise him from the dead. There it is. God will have to raise him from the dead because he promised it would come through him and now I'm going to kill him so God's going to raise him from the dead. He believed God's word. Despite what he saw, he believed the promise. Just assuming. It's impossible to raise somebody from the dead, but God made a promise, and for for God to keep his promise, he'll have to raise somebody from the dead, so therefore God is going to raise somebody from the dead. Abraham endured in faith and, and inherited the promise. Now make sure you understand something. All those years that Abraham waited, he wasn't faithful all those years. He wasn't always the model of faithfulness and uh, uh, trust in God's word. He wasn't always the model of obedience to the Lord. Abraham sinned lots of times. He lied. He failed several times in Genesis. But Abraham believed a promise even when he couldn't see how it's possible. But through Abraham is... The example, though Abraham is the example that this writer is using, the writer's point in this text is not that Abraham's just such a great guy. It's that God is faithful to his word. And God guaranteed his word with an oath. Since God's unalterable promise was the foundation of Abraham's patient endurance then God's unalterable promise must be the foundation of our patient endurance. Like Abraham, the readers of this this epistle to the Hebrews, they could continue to believe even when their situation suggested that God's promises have failed them and they've been forgotten and cast aside. They could endure because God cannot lie. We endure in faith, not because our faith is so strong, but because it's grounded on the promise of God, which is unalterable. When circumstances of this life suggest to us God's promises, God's word are not true, are not real, we can hold on to our faith, hold on to Christ, because we have a hope that is based in God's unchangeable word. He says, when he says God swore an oath to Abraham, he says, for people, in verse 16, swear by something greater than themselves, and in all of their disputes, an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired, look at this, this is very, it's a complex sentence, but it's very powerful. When God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise, the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things, the promise and the oath, which is is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have a strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. Now the author is showing us why, why God swore this oath in the first place. Verse 16 talks about humans. It says, when humans take oaths or swear by something greater than themselves, it's, 
it's a confirmation that is supposed to end disputes, meaning, meaning uh, oaths are used to declare our truthfulness, and that should be the end of it. You know, I swear to you that I am not lying. The reason we take oaths is because of our sin, of our, of our weakness, of our failure to be truthful. We swear an oath and invoke a higher authority to judge if we would break our word. Many times in the Old Testament, someone said, As surely as the Lord lives, I will do such and such. Or, May the Lord judge between you and me if I don't do such and such. But that even makes God's oath more problematic, doesn't it? I mean, why would God need to swear by himself to fulfill his word if his word is faithful and true all by itself? God swore an oath. Look at this in the verse, verse 17. For our benefit, not for his. Verse 17 says he swore to more convincingly show us, the heirs of the promise, that his promise is unchangeable. God's word alone is sufficient for us to trust. He cannot lie. He cannot deviate from his word. It's impossible, he says, for God to lie. God doesn't swear this oath because he's untrustworthy. But because our faith is weak, God lowers himself to swear an oath, not because there's something lacking in God, but because there's something lacking in us. But do you see the implication of this? God cares about our assurance. He cares about our trust in him, our hope in his word, our hope in his promise. God desires us to live in assurance and faith, knowing that his promise is true, that his promise is certain, even when you can't see it, even when you don't know how it could possibly be or how it will work out. God says, follow me and this is what I want you to do. And everything inside of us says, I can't do that. This will happen if I do that. God's word is sure and certain. He gave us the promise. He gave us an oath to confirm it. And notice who this oath is for. He says, to show convincingly the unchangeable character of his promise, of his purpose, to who? To Abraham. No, to the heirs. Plural. To the heirs of the promise. God's promise wasn't just for Abraham. We talked about it a minute ago. It was the gospel. It was for the heirs of the promise. And who are Abraham's heirs? They're those in Jesus Christ. Abraham's promise is our promise. Paul said that in Galatians chapter 3. If you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring heirs according to the promise. That's us. So look at verse 18. The reason God confirmed and guaranteed the promise with an oath was so that by two unchangeable things, the promise and the oath, we who have fled for refuge could have a strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. Do you see it? The promise and the oath are given to us to hold on to, knowing that it's impossible for God to lie. The confirmation of Abraham's promise was not just for Abraham's benefit, but for his descendants as well, for the heirs of the promise. 
God has given his word and his oath as a strong encouragement for these Hebrew Christians suffering and and not understanding how this can be and not understanding where God is in all my trials and all my persecutions. And if I continue professing Jesus and following Jesus, then more suffering and more persecution and and more trial and more hardship is going to come. How can I hold on? He says, God has given you his promise. He's confirmed it with an oath so you would have a strong encouragement a strong comfort to hold fast to the hope that's set before you God has given his word and his oath as an encouragement for you notice how he describes those who receive this encouragement first he includes himself you see it he's not just saying you guys need to come on what's wrong with y'all You need to come on and just hold fast. No, he said, by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge. He includes himself. And what's he talking about? He's talking about Jesus. Jesus is our refuge, our place of safety. He describes Jesus like the cities of refuge in the Old Testament. That's where the guilty could flee and find safety. Christ is our city of refuge. We're safe in him. As believers, as as disciples of Jesus Christ, we're not consumers, we're not spectators, we're, we're refugees fleeing to find safety from the judgment and the wrath for our sin, from the temptations of this world, from the temptations of our own heart. We're fleeing to Christ, for that's where our safety is. So even right now, right now, though it, it, it doesn't look like God's promises are being, are being lived out or being, are being fulfilled in, in their lives and their suffering and trial and all the things these readers are going through, the readers have an encouragement to hold fast to their hope in Christ. Just as Abraham believed God, we have the promise and the oath that makes it sure God's word holds true even when we have a hard time seeing how it can be. Jesus is the center of Abraham's promise. He's the center of our promise. And all that he has said is certain. Because, not because we're so faithful, not because we're so great, not because we're holding on so good. Our hope is based on Jesus' finished work. He says, we have this. This is the hope. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Here we go with Melchizedek again. This hope we have is the anchor of our soul. The the sure expectation that the promise and the oath are unchangeable and they cannot fail. Because it's impossible for God to lie. This hope is our anchor. The anchor is the the fixed point that doesn't ever move. I don't have to explain what anchor is, right? Everybody knows what anchor is. Throw Throw the anchor over the boat and keeps... Okay, we got it. The anchor keeps us from drifting. Stabilizes us in the storm, in the wind. In the Christian life, sometimes... You know, let's just be honest with each other. Sometimes we see our faith waver. Sometimes we're weak. 
Sometimes we're weak in our faith. We're weak in our obedience. We don't know how it can be. And we start to drift toward what we think is right rather than what God's word says. Sometimes you see weakness and frailty in your faith. And by God's grace, sometimes you see you yourself stand strong in faith and, and trust God when it doesn't seem like sometimes we're weak in it sometimes we're strong in it but our hope can't be founded on how well we're holding fast our strength our level of faith or our circumstances because if it is our hope is going to be blown all over the place by the storms of life but if our assurance is founded in the anchor of God's promise of Jesus's work it's solid, it's constant, and it does not move, ever. Nothing can change it. That's really the point of this section. He wants the Hebrews to be steadfast, to hold on. He's been saying it over and over and over again through all these chapters of Hebrews. He doesn't want them to be dull of hearing, but to go on to maturity with the hope of the gospel. He says this hope that we have in Jesus, it, it enters behind the curtain, meaning Jesus entered behind the curtain, behind the veil, into the Holy of Holies. It's, it's the anchor that is secure in the very presence of the Holy God. Hebrew Christian who is suffering is who he's writing to. I know that you're suffering. I know you're going through trial. You don't understand how following God's will, following God's word could possibly work out well for you or right for you or bring you anything but pain and torture. But you have an anchor that is fixed up in the holy of holies in heaven. Jesus Christ the righteous before the throne of God and it never moves. No priest, he might say, could go into the Holy of Holies and stay there like that. You know, even the high priest, they, he only went in, in in the tabernacle, in the temple, he only went in once a year. And when he went in on the Day of Atonement, he did his job and he got out of there. The Holy of Holies is a scary place. You mess around in there, you die. Something goes wrong, you do something wrong, you don't do something exactly right in the way that you present the sacrifice, you, you're dead, you're a dead man, it's a scary place. So the high priest would go in, he'd do his thing and he'd get out of there. And I don't think he looked forward to going back in next year. But our hope is secure in that very place because we know who is there and he's there to stay. Jesus, our high priest, didn't enter behind the veil and then quickly exit like all the other high priests did. He went in and completed the work once for all and sat down at the right hand of the Father. He's there seated on his throne, a high priest for you, interceding as you're going through your trials and your suffering, as you're going through all the hardships, the temptations of this life. life your high priest is there. On the throne of God, interceding for you right now, an anchor for your soul in the holy place. And don't miss this very, very important word in the text. In verse 20, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf. Jesus went into the Holy of Holies, ascended as God and man into heaven, into the Holy of Holies, into the presence of the Father as your forerunner. On your behalf, he says. You know what a forerunner is? No, it's not a Toyota. <laughs> a forerunner means one who goes first. But it also means somebody's following. Somebody's coming behind. 
If he's our forerunner, a forerunner on our behalf means where Jesus has gone, where Jesus is, we are to follow. Our assurance is that despite the trials of this life, we will be where he is. The author of Hebrews has said that three or four times already in this book. That's our hope. Even through the midst of of trials and sufferings, even in the midst when we cannot or will not or don't see how it's possible to obey God's word when, when trial is slapping me in the face all the time and I'm drowning in suffering and I don't know how to get out of this and it seems like professing Jesus and following Jesus is what's bringing this upon me. That's what the Hebrew Christians would say as they were being persecuted. You have an anchor in the Holy of Holies who has gone before you and your place is secure. Hold fast to your anchor. Don't go back. Jesus is our hope. And that hope is sure and steady. He is our forerunner. He's gone to prepare a place. He told us, John 14, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me and my Father's house or many rooms. If it were not so, you, so would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself. That where I am, you may be also. You know, this, this section, these, these three verses in John 14, they're often read, and I often read them at, at funerals. You know, we often read them at funerals, and it, it's a pleasant thing to do, and it's a, it's a, it's a hope and everything. But, but when we read this passage, when we read these three verses, usually we think, oh, well, good, Jesus is fixing my curtains in my mansion for me. You know, he, he's making the bed and making sure the carpet's just the way I like it in my mansion. No, Jesus is seated on the throne and he's bringing you to his side. He's bringing you to where he is in the presence of a holy God, in the presence of the Father. He is there where you will be. The promise is sure. The promise is certain. He is interceding for you right now. Trust him. Follow him. Listen to him. That is your only sure hope. It is your only hope. It's your only option if you are a follower of Christ. That's our hope. Even though we may not see it when darkness, the darkness of this world just closes in on us and our own sin and our own temptation makes us waver in the face of trial. Just as Abraham patiently waited, sometimes he did great, sometimes he didn't do do so good. But he trusted the word of God. God has given us the promise that Jesus is better. Jesus is all we need. He sworn to us that Jesus is an eternal high priest and he's representing us right now in the Father's presence. That's what he means when he says he is a priest in the order of Melchizedek. Do I have that last? No, I don't. Verse 20, Hebrews chapter 6. Look at it in your Bible. Last line. He is a priest in the order of Melchizedek. It's not the first time he said it. It won't be the last. What he means, chapter 7 is going to explain it more fully. What he means is Jesus is our perfect high priest and king who is representing us forever, perfectly, before the Father. So this section, this section of Hebrews is telling us we have a strong encouragement to hold fast. 
we have a strong encouragement to trust that Jesus is better because we have the promise of God and we have the oath of God that he swore. We have Abraham's promise in Christ, the world would be blessed, and he confirmed that by an oath. We saw that in text. But we also have the promise that Jesus is the Son of God. And we have God's oath that he is a high priest for you forever. Now, how do you get that? Where did you see that at? Well, when he said Jesus is a high priest in the order of Melchizedek, that's the oath. That last line in verse 20, that's the oath. He's quoted it once before in Hebrews 5, verse 6. He's going to quote it once again in Hebrews 7, verse 21, and he quotes it here. But that quote is from Psalm 110, verse 4, and it says this, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest. He's speaking to his son forever after the order of Melchizedek. It's an oath and a promise. We have a sure and better hope. We have the promise of God, the promise made more sure and encouragement to us by God's own oath that his son in the order of Melchizedek is our high priest seated on the throne interceding for us. The severe warning in this section that we looked at last week about falling away was just that. It was a warning. We must be cautious and recognize the danger of being dull, of hearing, being sluggish when it comes to God's word and God's truth. When God's word speaks, we can't play games. We can't become dull and sluggish. But the author doesn't intend the warning to lead us to paralyzing fear or despair. Our assurance and hope rests not in how well we're holding on, but to the foundation upon which we stand. And this promise and oath of the gospel gives us a sure and steadfast anchor, a strong encouragement to hold fast, even when we can't see how it's going to come about in the midst of the storm. Are you an heir to this promise? Flee to refuge in Christ. The gospel is the only safe harbor for the sinner. Trust in God's word. Trust in His promise. Trust in God to keep His promise, to keep His word. Know that Jesus is better, that He is better, and His way is better. And He knows the very intimate nature of your life. He knows your circumstances. He knows your heart. He knows your thinking. He knows your mind. He knows your motivations. And He's given you His word. Hold fast to Christ. Because he is the only safe place in the trials of life. Even when you don't see how it's possible that it could possibly work out. Hold fast to Christ because he is the only safe place. Run to him for safety because it's impossible for God to lie. His promise will hold true no matter what. But that also means since it's impossible for God to lie, his judgments will hold true as well. You've been given a place of refuge. Run to him. By grace through faith, trust in him. Entrust yourself to Christ. Repent of your sin and trust in Jesus. Hold fast to your anchor. Let's pray. Father, we do love you. We thank you for your word. God, we thank you for who you are. We thank you for all that you have done and all that you are doing. 
God, we ask that you would help us to hold fast. Help us to know that Jesus is better. Help us to grow in our love for you, for Christ. Jesus, we pray that you would, that you would show us the depth of your love for us. Remind us of the gospel, of the cross, of the empty tomb, of the ascension into heaven when you took your seat at the Father's side on our behalf. Father, we thank you for your salvation. We thank you for your glory. We thank you for your word. We pray that you would help us to hold fast to your promises. And if there's anyone here that doesn't know you, God, I pray that you would move in their hearts, that you would call them to yourself, and that they would trust in you, entrust their lives to you, and that they would be saved today. We thank you. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. As always, I'm going to stand right down here. I'd love to talk to you if you want to come. Will you stand with me while we sing?